Hello and welcome to the Past and Present podcast. Join me and my co-host Rosie as we journey through history one story at a time. How are you doing, Rosie? I'm good and um, it's really exciting today because um, we're talking about totalitarianism and we're not actually alone for this episode. So we're joined by Jackson uh, from History of Jackson. How are you today, Jackson? Hi, Rosie. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing good, thank you. It's a, it's a lovely day here in the Midlands of Peterborough. So, yeah, can't, can't complain really as, as, as much as you can in Peterborough. I see. <laughs> How are you both? Yeah, not doing, too, not doing too bad. Not doing too bad. Yeah, it's not as sunny here in uh, Surrey today. So, you know, bit of a, bit of a cold one. It was surprisingly nice up here today for the north. It was, uh, it was windy as, but uh, in terms of weather, it was uh, surprisingly pleasant for a change. Anyway, we should probably get going. Uh, so, Jackson, your book is called The Crystallization of Totalitarianism, How the 1953 Conference on Totalitarianism Defined the Term. So that's quite a wordy title for a book. So can you just give us a quick rundown on what is totalitarianism and what was the 1953 conference, which I appreciate is your entire book. Um, but if you, could, if you could just give us a quick rundown, uh, that'd be awesome. Yeah, of course. And probably in hindsight, maybe the title could have been less wordy. <laughs> uh, but it, it sounds cool regardless. So totalitarianism is a style of government. Uh, it's another one of those isms that we come across in politics, political science and history. And it is a system that has total control over a country. It is a regime that has total control over its citizenry, its people, uh, and everything that goes off within its realm. Uh, so examples of that we've had are you know, Stalin's Russia, Hitler's Germany, Mao's China, and the Kim Dynasty in North Korea. Now... The 1953 conference on totalitarianism, in my mind, and of course in my mind, is one of the most important moments in modern political history. It's a coming together of the great minds of politics, uh, coming together of some of the most highly thought of academics of this period who specialised in some of the areas discussed at the conference. And they came together to kind of go, well, we have... A loose idea of what this is but we need to we need to define it we need to put some kind of boundary on it to say to give us a looser or not looser but more a firm idea of what it is they, they said their aim is wasn't really to say what it was but they did kind of come to a crystallization of what totalitarianism is and for us as a modern audience what it kind of continues to be really yeah. Why do you think, I might be putting you on the spot here, but why do you think it was important to have a more clear definition of what totalitarianism was or is? Yeah, so in, in 1940, there'd been kind of like a, a prequel. That's the best way to say it, really, um, to this conference. It was called the 1940 Symposium on Totalitarianism. And it kind of looked at how a totalitarian state operated without saying what one was. So you just had, you know, coming to 1953, you just had the fall and the collapse of Hitler's Germany. And you've just had the the rise 
and continued brutality of Stalin's Russia being exposed to people. Now, interestingly, the day before this conference, Stalin died. And we've just had that kind of marks the marks the end of the high point, um, as I've referred to in the past, the golden ages of totalitarianism, where people have seen these systems, people have seen these regimes, but, you know, what are they? And I think that's that's kind of why we need this conference, just to say, what are they? As opposed to, you know, Uncle Joey and Adolf Hitler, you know, they're, they're brutal, but... You know, there's a democracy in, in in Germany. So how do we characterise that? And in same again in Russia. Well, it's communism. How how do we differentiate that with other with other regimes? And, and that's why I think it was really important to crystallise exactly what totalitarianism was at this point in time. I was going to ask actually if there was any significance with the, the year 1953 obviously the same year that Stalin died but by the sounds of it it was pure coincidence that it was literally the day after after he died I'm assuming they didn't they didn't somehow plan for that no no I'd, I'd hope not but I've I've <laughs> always had this image in my mind of a group of academics frantically looking through their papers the night before after the news has hit America and going oh, oh man what can I change what can I put in you know, I've written this paper based upon based upon what he's doing and suddenly he's not here anymore. And I've always just imagined that comical scene in my head whilst whilst writing. It sounds like the Death of Stalin film. If if people have not seen that, I uh, I fully recommend it, as I'm sure Jackson will as well. Oh, 100%. Definitely will. Yeah, so it's interesting, like, um, obviously you said, like, they felt they needed to define totalitarianism. I'm going to mess that up so many times because it's a bit of a mouthful. Um, but I know you've mentioned a few examples, but kind of what were the key examples that were, you know, brought into the discussion or like, you know, used as examples as well that um, kind of really stand out, I guess? So the conference, interestingly, was a... A conference of refugees. Uh, a lot of these academics had been academics in their their previous life in Germany, and they had escaped to the U.S. to escape persecution uh, for speaking out against the Nazi regime or for having Jewish backgrounds. And you know these these people coming to the U.S. and being at this conference were giving a perspective of their life of their lived experiences and that forms the backbone of the conference you know these lived experiences within Nazi Germany and for some of them their lived experiences of the Soviet regime and for me this is very much a, conf uh, a conference of refugees and that was why it was important for them as much as the world to have this conference and kind of define their experiences and lay open their experiences to the world and they're the two most dominant uh totalitarian regimes that are mentioned within the conference it's hitler's germany stalin's russia but there is a kind of alluding to the eastern european satellite state it's the eastern bloc and there is a mention of china within the conference because you know mao is rising to power china is rising in power and the eastern european states are tightening their grip on society at that point yeah it's definitely a kind of key time of 
you know, make or break, I guess, for certain regimes. Like, obviously, we see kind of in, like, the East that, you know, things were starting to, you know, heat up. Like, especially in East Germany, where, like, West Berlin and East Berlin, you know, where it was all kind of split and up in the air. I think, like, this kind of early period is when they really started kind of, I guess, panicking. So I guess it was a time where other people watching on were really interested in kind of how it was all working and trying to explain it to people because maybe they thought in a way that would help stop it but obviously it didn't really do anything of the sort it just allowed people to talk about it a bit more easily yeah and a lot of these a lot of these people at the conference also worked for the u.s state department so it's not like they were a group of academics in a room at the american academy of arts and sciences just talking about totalitarianism and giving their papers and saying, oh, this is what happened to me. And this is like, you know, just kind of what most people imagine these conferences are like. But these these people were working for the U.S. State Department. So their research was actually having an impact on the way the U.S. saw the world. You know, George Kennan, who I mentioned in the book, he worked for the U.S. State Department and he was actually the author of the X-Telegram uh, that influenced the Truman Doctrine. And whilst the Truman Doctrine didn't enact exactly what Kennan believed, uh, Kennan disagreed with the militaristic aspect of the Truman Doctrine, you can see that these people are actually having a tangible effect on American foreign policy. I guess from our 21st century point of view, it may not at first seem, you know, totally relevant, but it clearly is because obviously since 1953, the last 70 years now, um, we're coming up to nearly exactly 70 years, aren't we? Um, the world has been on the brink of some some pretty awful stuff, and you know maybe you know something that was said during this conference um, it could have in a way altered uh, altered history. Is that is that too much of a stretch? Would you say? I think the. The conference has, I think the conference has perhaps faded from obscurity, faded mm. into obscurity, sorry. Uh, Friedrich, the main man behind the conference, did go on to write another book, um, Totalitarian Dictatorship and Autocracy, I think it was. I haven't, I haven't got it right on hand with me right now. Uh, and he wrote that with uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski. Uh, and that became... Well, you know, the ideas that Friedrich spoke about in this conference went on to become one of the dominant theories in totalitarianism for the foreseeable. And we still have people mentioning Friedrich within the theories uh, and other theories later came about. But I, I kind of see this conference as the beginning of people starting to recognise it, starting to write about it. Um, and even... You know, within the past five years, Marsha Gessen, I hope I've really pronounced her name right, Marsha Gessen wrote um, The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia. And they've even mentioned the conference within their book. So it is still, it is still relevant and people are still, still writing about it or still writing about views that were formulated at this conference you're saying like it's still relevant today um and obviously you're saying like you know historians still write about it and people still talk about it 
But are there still examples of kind of totalitarianism states um, about or is it more just something, you know, that we talk about, but it doesn't actually kind of exist as it was back then? It's... It is very important, and that's part of the reason why I wrote the book as well, is it's very important to not hide away from these things, hide away from these regimes, and just uh, you know, call a spade a spade. Uh, so there are, there are various opinions on what certain regimes are, but I am of the opinion that China under Xi Jinping at the moment is a totalitarian state. Uh, they have a wide reaching deep surveillance system of which they keep constant tabs on their citizens uh, and I, and what's happening in Uruguay with the the holocaust or the genocide of Uruguay Muslims in in a, a familiar term re-education camps uh, I think definitely characterizes uh, Jinping's China as a, t a totalitarian regime um, Belarus under Alexander Lushenko, the UN recently, uh, I think it was last year or even the year before, characterized it, actually defined it, sorry, as a totalitarian regime. You, know, you have the suppression of democracy. You have the police acting as a force to prevent any kind of opposition to that regime. And some scholars today are even calling ISIS a a totalitarian regime, a totalitarian entity, uh, because they are officially a government now. Uh, we have to recognise that, and we have to recognise their practices around that as well. So it is a relevant term to us today. And, and again, we still have North Korea under the Kim dynasty. So it's not something that you know just happened in the 1930s, 40s and 50s with Hitler and Stalin, because that's what we see a totalitarian state is, and it's an evolving term that takes upon technological evolutions to increase its scope and intensity of power over its citizenry. It's interesting what kind of countries and what states you've mentioned there, because something I wanted to ask you is something that you refer to a few times in your book um, is kind of the idea of the cult of personality uh, and the idea of deification. Um, how crucial um, was it to a to, or is it to a totalitarian state um, to have these um, rather strange concepts in place? So it's a question of loyalty, and that's why the cult of personality is there. The deification of the leader is there because if you have Christianity, if you have some other body, other organisation which can claim loyalty uh, and a kind of totality over people's thoughts and, and actions such as the church can claim then there is an opposition to the leader, there is an opposition to the regime and that's where the cult of personality comes in Is it, it acts as a, a rallying point where people can be loyal to that people can follow unquestionably and worship in the same way as they would to the church but in a way that is productive for the regime the regime cannot 
harness the power of the church for its own goals, but it can certainly harness the power of the citizenry who have paintings of Stalin or paintings of Mao in their home and use that to their advantage. Yeah, that's one thing I've always found like really interesting kind of when studying, um, you know, previous regimes, like even kind of Nazis is that they really didn't like the church because it was a way of distracting from their kind of, you know, what they were all about. And I thought like that was really interesting because you kind of don't think about something kind of as simple as the church being something that would really make people not believe in the regime um and I think it's interesting that with a lot of you know like as you're saying like a lot of um these regimes did you know include groups and other activities and just you know other ways of just influencing people without it seeming like it was influencing I think that's just a really interesting part of it because it's something that you don't necessarily think of straight away when you think of harsh regime it's some it's something that you kind of take for granted really um and the harshness of the uh of the regime isn't really you know it's the secret police's fault you know that they're, they're the ones knocking on the doors um and whilst they feared these leaders and so on there was also a lot of love for them um you know you've only got to look like people literally cried at Stalin's funeral, there were tears and mass hysteria, uh, hysteria, because of Stalin's death at his funeral, and there was literally a stampede in which people died, whilst trying to get a view of Stalin's body. Um, that is, to a certain extent, brainwashing. But there's definitely an emotion. You don't. Nothing like that happens without an emotional connection. You know, he was he was the father. He was the grandfather. He was the provider. Of Russia yeah I think you know the emotional connection is really something that did keep the regime alive like without that emotional connection people aren't going to believe in you so it's kind of fundamental to the regime and I recently read um, Tunnel 29 um, by Helena Merriman about and this like people who escaped from the Berlin Wall and I found it so interesting when they were kind of talking about how, although obviously the Stasi, like the secret police, they were getting people by kind of blackmailing them. Some people like were happy to just be part of it and send their reports in. And I think that's the people that kind of kept the regimes going because they actually genuinely believed they were doing a good thing. And they would, you know, they were quite proud of themselves for all the reporting and stuff that they did. So I think like there's always the two sides. Like we always think about the people who try and escape or do escape or are really unhappy. But there's also that other side of people who are like just really into it. Oh, hundred percent. Is we we do we are very guilty of of focusing on that. And I, I've I've been saying to the same within suffragette movements as well to at school is that um you know whilst there were a number of women protesting about their role in society it was a minority of women people were usually or women were usually happy about their role uh they didn't want to question it because they were comfortable uh, and it's the same with it's kind of 
very similar within these societies is they know the repercussions if they question it. So if they question it, or if they know the repercussions, why would they question it? Uh, and I think it takes a particularly brave kind of person to question these societies and to escape and like in this conference to actually go internet go to an international conference and speak about it i think it's 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 really interesting that you mention religion or the the kind of the dislike of a, a former religion which you do see in these um at least in the 20th century totalitarian regimes of nazi germany and um kind of soviet russia obviously when when i was researching for this episode to find some kind of historical link, as we always do, I found it quite difficult. And, you know, within reading your book, it, it makes sense. Um, I think you described it at one point as historically unique. And yes, there are elements in history. You know, I've, I immediately think of the divine right of kings um, enjoyed in, I say enjoyed, um, that, you know, that was popular in medieval Europe. Um, and further back with the with the early Roman Empire and the the late Republic, um, you know Augustus, um, the first emperor, was you know turned into a god um, after his reign. Um, but outside of that, it, it's it's virtually there is no examples of this um, outside of outside of the twentieth century, really. And it's. It's because it's it's allowed by technology. Yeah, you can't have a a near monopoly over all means of armed combat if you don't have net technology. You can't you can't make sure that you have that. You can't have the best kind of weapons if technology isn't there. And you can't have a monopoly over over communications if you don't have technology you know the printing press allows freedom of information you can't control every free or every print printing press you can't control every quilt but what you can do is if you control the radios you can control the dissemination of information if you control the television sets you can control the dissemination of information you control the narrative and i think that's the technology that allows you to control that narrative distinctly sets totalitarianism apart from autocracy from divine monarchy um from the roman republics it's yeah i mean but like like i said before researching for this episode and before um reading your book i thought there would be a lot more comparisons to make and I think that's what makes this so interesting as a, as a as a kind of a micro subject all on its own that it really was kind of the first part of the 20th century as let's say really was a perfect situation where it was a perfect storm as, as some people may say but yeah and, you, and you, you hit the nail on the head there you it is the perfect storm you have conditions which you like I've said in the book you have a rise in the romanticism surrounding the the nation state you have a opposition a growing opposition to the feudal society and there are people on hand lenin hitler who or mao even kim il-sung who 
are capable of harnessing these kind of feelings and utilizing them to form these these massive totalitarian regimes you know central to most totalitarian ide ideologies is the nation state you know what what does it mean to be german you know Russia, russification uh and these kind of ideas you know the superior race kind of are perpetuated by these regimes because it helps them and they are tapping into something that is is there and that they want to use but it is interesting you say that they are um you know you couldn't find much examples but it borrows totalitarianism mm. borrows quite heavily from other parts of society and particularly something that i could see quite quite a lot in my research is the relation with the church there's a similarity between totalitarianism and the totality of the church particularly in the middle ages and i saw the way that totalitarian terror is enacted against the citizenry the kind of targets that they make and they found and their groups that they wanted to get was very similar to the groups that the church targeted in inquisitions you know the people who who didn't believe the people who were connected to those who didn't believe the people who had connections to foreign or rival organizations at the families of those people who they suspected as as being in opposition not even people who were even confirmed in being opposition just people who they suspected um you know, there's quite a lot of similarities i found within those areas i think it's interesting that you mentioned the inquisition as well um it's not really something i thought that would compare so nicely but it, i mean it really does doesn't it so the, the the inquisition starts in the starts in the 13th century really um and lasts for a considerable amount of time and i guess obviously correct me if if i'm wrong but that sounds like the first not attempt but kind of like proto totalitarianism now that's hard to say um you know a complete you know, an attempt to systematically dominate a population. Obviously, the Inquisition was only with, with specific goals in mind, but the power of the church in the Middle Ages, as you've kind of alluded to, it was a complete system of, you know, a way of life. So it doesn't take much to get from the Inquisition to 20th century totalitarianism. Would you say I'm, I'm off the mark there, or is that a fair assessment? No, that is a, that is a fair assessment. Uh, I, I definitely believe that the church had a very total level of control in areas. Definitely not totalitarianism, but authoritarian in its actions, mm. autocratic in its actions. Um, and these inquisitions were done with the same with the same kind of goal as terror is done in totalitarian regimes. It's to it's to gain a kind of conformity from the people and not even from the people that they're targeting but if you're if you're someone who is a catholic who is a communist who is a stalinist and you see people who 
don't necessarily believe, don't necessarily follow, and then they're punished and they're being hunted down for what they believe. Well, you're gonna you're gonna harden your belief in your areas. You're going to continue to be a staunch Catholic, a staunch Stalinist, a staunch communist. Yeah, definitely. And I think like another comparison that we could kind of draw between the church and um, totalitarianism is kind of they always have like quite a key leader and you know face of the operation I guess like you know in the church in Catholicism you've got the Pope in Protestants you've got kind of the head of state so you know in the UK that would be the king or the queen um, where you know and in kind of totalitarianism you kind of have that person who you know is what people idolize and kind of brings it all together isn't there yes certainly and i think there is a lot of there's a lot of crossover uh between these kind of these kind of regimes and these these medieval regimes but the definitely definitely the idea of deification the idea of the cult of personality probably stems from it uh but the actual execution the actual ideology the system the structures behind it are so vastly different because of the rise of technology uh that i i definitely continue to say that these bodies were authoritarian as opposed to totalitarianism and it's quite interesting as well as another crossover with the popes is that the popes are most popes are canonized and beatified after their death they become saints uh, revered worshipped after their death and yet the same happens mostly within totalitarian states. Lenin is embalmed. You could see Lenin. I think you can still see Lenin. Um, North Korea, Kim Jong-il and Kim Il-sung, they are still worshipped within their country years, years and years after their deaths and then revered as this kind of holy history like the popes are. Yeah, it's really interesting kind of to actually see the similarities and I guess kind of I guess this like kind of worshipping someone is like another way just to kind of bring it all together you know it's a clever way to do it because having someone you can kind of relate to is or you know or not relate to because you know say like North Korea they have a lot of lies about what their leaders are like whereas you know in some of the other regimes maybe it's more like oh, he's an ordinary guy like you and me and he's just managed to do his best. Like, I think there's like that split, but it's just interesting. Um, but kind of just a question of like, what else do you think we should know about totalitarianism or what is like kind of your most favourite or like striking piece of research that you found when you were writing your book? Oh, you've caught me now. You've caught me, Rosie. <laughs> it's a fantastic question. Uh, personally, I do, I do love the, I think you both know where I'm going to go, I do love cult personality, I absolutely do, uh, but it's, it's the terror, it is really the terror, I find the terror so, so fascinating, that, you know, why did they target these groups, why are these numbers so disputed, uh, how were these people treated, and for what goal, you know, mainly I'm a political historian, and I love I love comparing these regimes and that's why my book is very much comparative. But I did 
really quite love researching the terror. I even came upon, I was on some absolutely bizarre Russian website and I felt like my Wi-Fi was slowing at university by the minute. Uh, but I actually looked at some copies of Stalin's actual kill lists and and looking at that primary source was just fascinating that you know actually like you know Stalin signed this and this is practically the death certificate of hundreds possibly thousands of people and it's just here on my laptop screen and I can I can look at it and yeah that was that was fascinating really so just before we go Jackson it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you today do you want to let people know where they can find you Oh, uh, well, if people want to find me, which I hope they, they do. They will. Uh, uh, my website is www.historyofjackson.co.uk. My Instagram and TikTok and Facebook are at History of Jackson. And then my Twitter, because of bizarre Twitter character limits in handles, is at History W Jackson. And then if you'd like to find a copy of my book to read yourselves, it is available on Amazon and you can buy a signed edition from myself on my website www.historyofjackson.co.uk and it'll be on the shop there on my website lovely and just in case you didn't write all of that down as you should have been doing um, we'll make sure that the uh, all of jackson's social handles and website is in the show notes or at the very least on the instagram post that will um, accompany this episode as always, we really hope you've enjoyed this episode and we hope to see you again soon. From myself and Rosie and Jackson, thanks for listening. For more, make sure to follow us on Instagram at Past and Present Media and at Twitter on Past Present M. Thank you. <laughs>